Welcome to the Enabled Disabled Podcast. I'm your host, Gustavo Serafini. I was born with a rare physical disability called PFFD. My journey has been about self-acceptance, persistence, and adaptation. On the show, we'll explore how people experience disability, how the stories we tell ourselves can both enable and disable, how vulnerability is the foundation for strength, and why people with disabilities can contribute more than we imagine. I hope that leaders, companies, clinicians, families, and friends will better understand our capacity to contribute to the world and help enable us to improve it. Nicole Santamaria is an occupational therapist at the Atlantic Center for Reconstructive Surgery, where she specializes in cranial remolding therapy. Occupational therapists serve an important role in adult and pediatric care. I wouldn't be where I am today without the wonderful occupational therapists I had as a child. And I feel it's invaluable to learn more about them, what they do, and how they work with their patients. Nicole epitomizes how a great occupational therapist works. They see the whole person, understand their goals, and empathetically problem solve to better outcomes. We're getting some terrific feedback on the show so far, and it's having an impact. We're super grateful to share this space with you, and we want to keep growing the podcast together. So please share it with friends, colleagues, and family members. It'll really help us grow. Oh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Super honored to be here with you via Zoom. <laughs> Thank you. So let's uh, let's get started. So for people who don't know a little about you, let's get into your background. Sure. So you are an occupational therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll dive into that more in a bit. But mm-hmm. so when, like, at what point in time when you were in school did you kind of know that you had an interest in occupational therapy? So really was probably around the second year of my undergraduate studies. Um, I went into college not exactly knowing what was it that I wanted to do. I was kind of open to finding new paths. So believe it or not, I started as a a major in art history because I was going to live in Italy and be a curator. (laughs) Um, But slowly... After taking a few classes, I realized maybe that's not the path for me. So I remember sitting in the floor of my dorm room, opening the course book, looking through, and I knew I wanted to be in the health field. I had a strong sense in that direction. So I started looking at the different, you know, um, paths. So you had, uh, the track for PA, which is physician assistant, the track for rehab, um, the track for nursing. And therapy really called to me. I'd remember being present with my own uh, family member who was going through therapy way before I was in college and family friends that were therapists. And I was like, huh, okay, that's pretty interesting. So (laughs) so I was able to apply to the the College of uh, Allied Health, because therapy um, is part of a health profession, um, which includes nursing, dentistry, physical therapy, 
And once you start that program, they introduce you to generic health studies. You're taking anatomy and physiology, kinesiology, biology, physics. And after that, pretty much that kind of sets you in the course for, uh, you know, once you start focusing on your career choice, then you're able to branch out into those direct programs. Um, So pretty much wasn't until my third or fourth year that I really decided on occupational therapy. And then once I picked it, um, it's, uh, it's been the course for me since then. Interesting. So you could have gone physical therapy. You could have gone those other routes, but you chose mm-hmm. in the, within the same program, you chose occupational therapy. That's right. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So again, for, for people who, who don't know, or maybe like the distinction is not as clear as it should be. What's the main, or what are the big differences between what an occupational therapist does and a physical therapist? Okay. That's a good question, guys, because we get that all the time. The name occupation, uh, occupational therapy is it's confusing at first. Some people think you work in pediatric occupational therapy. Do you find jobs for kids? <laughs> and, and although uh, finding your occupation or vocation is important, uh, occupational therapists really help people across the lifespan uh, participate in meaningful wants and needs activities that, you know, just through the therapeutic use of self guide them through everyday activities. So an occupation for a child might be being able to participate in play or being able to write their name down, um, being able to sit in a classroom. For adults, it could be something different, such as being able to brush your teeth or standing up from a wheelchair, not using a wheelchair, things like that. So uh, what distinguishes us from physical therapists, uh, we really like to focus on the therapeutic use of self. So we really look at the person, um, not only from a biomechanical point of view, which is, you know, like looking at the muscle or looking at the bone or what exactly is wrong, but looking at the other aspects of that person's life to see how are they impacted, where are they limited, and how do we facilitate them to get to that point? Um, we're not trying to fix necessarily someone. We're trying to help them get back to activities or find a new way to do something that's important to them. Yep. So I know that um, I had a couple of occupational therapists at different stages of my life and childhood that were unbelievably important to help me. You know, it was I had physical therapy too, but, um, you know, okay. So how do, how do I tie a shoe with one arm? Right. Like, so I never learned how to do that, but we found workarounds or how do we get Gustavo into school, into like normal schools, you know, like, because back at, back in the early eighties, um, the occupational therapist was very adamant with my mom about like, don't send him, like do whatever you can to send him to, you know, a quote unquote normal school. He's going to get better education, uh, more opportunities, et cetera. And she really helped me kind of not only she got me into the first school I went to kindergarten and first grade, a Montessori school, but she helped me prepare for school. And it was just, It was an invaluable experience, but that's only one element of, you know, that's only one kind of 
subfield of what an occupational therapist could could do, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. There is occupational therapists that work in school settings. So, you know, they may be helping a child in the classroom. They may be bringing in assistive technology to allow the child to continue sitting in the same classroom with their peers, not having to leave or be able to, you know, just keep the same environment that they may be used to or like what your therapist thought was a viable goal for you and your mom to continue or to to be around your peers and not be isolated because that's a big problem, especially with uh, people who have limitations or disability. Isolation is a big thing. You know, adults, children often feel that they can't participate in the world around them just because the world itself is set up with so many barriers. And so OTs help facilitate that transition so that someone can still be in the same classroom as you and, you know, may need a little extra help sometimes in the form of a bouncing ball or fidget toy, or you may see a technological tool. You may see an iPad or something that helps them be able to participate. And that's super important. And so when you were when in school as in like studying to be an occupational therapist, did you get to work in certain, you know, clinical settings or was it mostly just academic work and then they kind of throw you out into the world? <laughs> so basically, um, when I started OT school, it, it, it's a master's program um, at the time. So you do work on getting your bachelor's degree. Um, and this is for occupational therapists because there's actually occupational therapy uh, assistants who also go through school. But once you start the master's program, as far as in my school, because every university is different, every program is different. When I started, there was a change in the curriculum. So it wasn't always a master's program, but it had become so in the recent years. And the way they set up the curriculum was different. So it did involve at first a lot of classroom work, trying to establish within us future therapists, what was the frameworks? What was the skeletons of occupational therapy, the history, the theory, um, your basic sciences. So we we were taking anatomy and physiology along with the PTs and the dentals and all the ODs, all those other, uh, students. We were also taking um, kinesiology, but once the program starts to uh, bring you to completion, then you're able to do what they call rotations or internships where they split the class into different uh, locations. So when you're out, you may be in a pediatric setting. So you may be in a school, you may be in an, um, a, cl- a clinic that's independent from a hospital, or you can be in a hospital setting. Um, and then you do an adult rotation. So then the whole classroom's with adults. So again, that could be in a nursing home, in a hospital. At first, it's really the luck of the draw. You, you, can, um, you can voice what you <laughs> really where you're interested in going, but you kind of just get, all right, this place is available to take you. They're not bombarded with other students. So this is where you're going to go. But I I will tell you, one of the most interesting rotations I had wasn't in a clinic. It was in the community. 
So it was in an art studio that caters to um, the community that has any uh, mental health issues. So that was interesting because you think therapy and you're like, huh, okay, I can see how that would be beneficial. Of course, you know, we're going to be everywhere, but the art studio worked in doing a lot of therapy with art and doing group therapy and occupational therapists actually come from that. Like our history, when we first came about, actually started with mental health. So it was interesting to be in an art studio, not in a clinical setting per se, have these tools available to you and turn them into a therapeutic use. So um, that was, that was really interesting and it was uh, memorable for sure. That's, that's really interesting. So um, I spoke to a really interesting lady a, a week ago, Harley, she's on the show and she um, uses art as a way to, it's, it's rehab and therapy for her. Mm-hmm. So it's a way for her. She's, um, she's partially paralyzed from a diving accident and she uses art. It started out as a way for her to exercise her her arms mm-hmm. and then it turned into something therapeutic and something that she actually loves. And she's, you know, she's painting constantly now, which is, which is interesting that you had that experience. Absolutely. Uh, art, yeah. Artist therapy. Do they, is that pretty common or is that pretty hard to find? You think, are there a lot of art studios? There's probably not a lot of art studios doing that. Right. 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 And that was an art studio that was funded within the community and it was part of a program that was receiving grants um, and they would help the people who were coming to the studio. They would pick them up from if they were in group homes or in a special, you know, facility, they would bring them in. So there was people who were independently living in the community. And then there's people who were in uh, homes or might not be like a home for homeless people, but a home maybe because they weren't able to take care of themselves. Um, you know, like an so assisted, they, assisted living facility. Yeah. And mostly for like mental health issues. So, you know, if someone's uh, issues were really severe enough that they weren't able to live by themselves or didn't have anyone to care for them, they would live somewhere. And then the place provided transportation to and fro. So it was pretty interesting um, to talk to the people, hear their stories. A lot of them said that when they were Starting off, they didn't even know how to hold a paintbrush or how to mix pastel colors or or anything like that. But a lot of them found that the art in itself was more meaningful and even they felt that worked better than their medication. A lot of them said there was a woman who told me that when she was drawing, she wasn't listening to, you know, the voices because she was she had auditory hallucinations. So she was hearing things that was just part of her every day. And she said when she was doing that, she wasn't hearing. So it was a way for her to cope and then also for her own therapy. So absolutely. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Should That's really amazing. And then when you got out of school, what was your first, what was your first, well, before we get into your first job, looking back at school now, I'm curious, like, what do you think they could be doing better 
teaching wise? Like what are the things that you wish you knew in school that they didn't, that they, that you didn't get? It's a good question. <laughs> so the schools, um, I can only talk from my experience. Like I said, every program is different, but uh, schools will teach you everything by the book. <laughs> and when you take your board examinations, you have to go by the book, but real life isn't by the book. So um, a lot of things that you see in the day-to-day clinic, I, I feel um, would be beneficial. So especially like in pediatrics, a lot of the times you're not only talking with the child, but their families or extended family. So I think a lot more education regarding how to be an effective therapist with the families <laughs> is beneficial. Um, dealing with just the red tape insurances, that's one of the biggest challenges as a therapist is being able to provide the services in effectively when you're being constrained with you know, payments and minutes and things like that. So that's really challenging in itself. Um, Because in school, they're like, you can do so much. You can do all this and do this. But then you go to the real world. It's like, oh, that's not paid for. You can't do that. (laughs) We don't have the funds for that. So, you know, just trying to work with that. And then just uh, helping with job transition, looking for a career. I think my program didn't really have that. We graduated and then we were all left on our own to, you know, find a job, apply, uh, you know, and, and figure out that maybe when you are fresh out of school, you shouldn't be doing certain jobs, even though they're the ones that are most available. Things like home health, Home health is great. You work on your own. You get to go to different homes. You get to do one-on-one therapy, but you don't have a lot of support. So a new therapist that maybe has a lot of information, what's going on up to date, but doesn't have the hands-on skills yet can be left pretty much alone, you know, if if they're not, is there not a team there to, to fall back on? So just little things like that probably would be more beneficial. So. So, okay, that's interesting. So the people that work in home health out of school essentially are like freelancers, basically. Like they just, it's their own, it's their own kind of business and they're just going out and, and how do they find, how do they find clients then? Yeah. <laughs> yes and no. So home health is uh, usually provided by a company that contracts therapists. Um, some of those therapists are full-time. Some of them are part-time. Uh, they pretty much will work with the social workers, the local insurance companies, the hospitals. So when you're leaving a hospital and let's say you need additional help in the home, maybe you need a little bit more therapy. As you're leaving the hospital, the hospital will set up either with your insurance company or social worker or caseworker. Um, they will set up a plan for the person once they get home. So usually an agency will contact the family or contact the person and they will send someone, physical therapist, a nurse, an occupational therapist to evaluate and see what the, what the patient needs, what, you know, you're in your house now, you're in your, 
you know, the place where you need to thrive the most, how can we help you? So the, the jobs in home health are, um, are in demand or at least pre pre pandemic they were. Um, and it's very attractive because you tend to be able to work certain hours. So you may be doing weekends, evenings, you can be flexible in your time. Um, sometimes it's paid by, by patient. So it, it really, um, it's attractive for, for anyone to, to consider that. But when you're fresh out of school, you would definitely need a group of people to be there, a mentor, or to be in a place where you're able to look at someone and say, hey, let's talk about so-and-so. What can we do to help this person thrive? And so not everyone in home health is a fresh, is a fresh therapist, but uh, it, is, it is one of the jobs readily available that, you know, that you look at, you know, if you're searching for a job. So um, it's just something to consider. I think it would be interesting, um, maybe as a, a side project down the road, I was speaking to um, a really interesting lady named Kelsey. She works at a Center for Independent Living. Mm, which okay. was, are you familiar with those? Yes, yes. Yes. So I, I wasn't, but it's, it's, really, it's really interesting now that I am. I think that would potentially be a great way for if the OT schools could establish relationships with the local centers for independent living, that could be another, another way to branch out and actually help people get some, some important internships and also some experience, you know, working with people with disabilities who need that, you know, like they're trying to live independently and, and mm-hmm. figuring out how to help them do that. Absolutely. And, and there are programs out there that try to set students to see these places. Um, a lot of these uh, independent living and assisted living places have a very, very fancy, attractive structure to it where they sometimes go far and beyond to help these, um, these people just live their life to the fullest. I mean, you're talking about like you have sensors in the home to be able to detect if a person hasn't walked on a certain surface, you know, to alert the center and like, listen, check on Mr. So-and-so they haven't gotten up. Um, so definitely there are some programs out there that are already sending students out, um, to, you know, just to kind of see how these places are, but yeah. And then what was, so what was your first job out of school? My first job was in a skilled nursing facility. So a little a little different than an independent um, living facility. So independent living facilities are usually homes, small apartments that don't look any different than the standard ones, except they're equipped to make it easy for generally anyone to live in. So the showers, um, there's no bathtubs. There's typically showers, so you don't have to step over a threshold. There's safety bars. Uh, everything's open and accessible, so you don't have to navigate through difficult um, pathways. It's usually very illuminated. And depending on the location, the meals are taken care of, medication is taken care of. So the person really 
uh, doesn't have to cook. So there's no risk for fire or burning or injury like that. And um, there is people looking after the, the residents there. So if you need to go to the grocery store, if you need to go somewhere, they do that. They help you with that. Um, but you're able to live by yourself. You don't have to have someone with you 24 hours. So that's, that's good. So a skilled nursing facility is different in the fact that it, it is a, a rehab facility. Um, that's where the skilled nursing comes into play. So usually people that are at a skilled nursing facility need some type of nursing care or rehab. Nursing could be as little as you're on a special medication no one can give it to you at home or you need to be an IV. So maybe you need to stay in this place for a week or so while you go through the medication. Or it can be something as you can't get up. You had a recent surgery. So we need to take you here so that we can help care for you. And then while you're here, you're going to receive services to get you stronger and get you back. So physical therapy, OT, occupational therapy, or speech are usually uh, offered at these places. Some skilled nursing facilities are short-term, which means you're only there for a short amount of time. It could be anything as a few days to a few months, depending on what your needs are. And some of them offer both. So some of them offer long-term, which means maybe you need to be there for longer than five months or six months, or maybe you need to be here indefinitely, which then is considered similar to a nursing home where you need some nursing care. And what, so can you talk a little bit, let's get into a little bit of specifics and then we'll move into your current role, which is a really interesting transition. Mm -hmm. But so when you were at the skilled nursing center, can you, can you tell us, um, was there uh, one particular person or maybe like uh, something that you felt really good about that you did that you, you improved somebody's life in a way that, that like, wow, that was impactful. I really, I made a difference there. Can you, t you know, give us a story, an example of, of what that would look like? <laughs> so the skilled nursing facility I worked in was a little bit different than most in it, that it had um, an Alzheimer's unit in it. So the staff there was trained to work with individuals who had dementia and Alzheimer's. So our skilled nursing location um, could be locked if it needed to be. So someone wasn't able to, to, to leave. But um, to answer your question, there was, there was a few people actually. Um, I think it was extra special because it's challenging enough to work with um, an individual who is used to doing everything on their own and now they rely on someone and it's really difficult. I mean, for anyone to lose your independence, to have to depend on someone. So um, generally speaking, adults are a little bit more apprehensive <laughs> about doing therapy, um, but you know, they know they need it. So working with Alzheimer patients is extra tricky because depending on the level of um, advancement of their dementia or their Alzheimer's, they can forget right, right then and there what you just taught them. So <laughs> um, it can be challenging, but a couple of the people that, that I recall were just lovely people who 
who are not aware of where they were. Um, a lot of them thought they were at a hotel, but it was, I, I had one patient in particular, she thought I was her niece. <laughs> and so, so she was, um, she was always happy to see me and it was just beneficial to work with her because we needed her to, to be able to walk. <laughs> we needed, we needed her to be able to, to be able to get up from her wheelchair and, and then sit back down so that she can, um, so she can just be able to go out with her family. She wasn't going to go home. She was going to stay there. But one of the big things was for her to be able to do that. So I collaborated with the physical therapist with her and physical therapist was working on trying to get her to stand up and, and sit down. And then I worked with her on developing ways for her to remember to do it safely. So it was, it was interesting because it was a joint, it was joint therapy. We were tagging on this, on this particular um, patient so that she could remember. And there were times she forgot, but for the most part, she was able to remember if not being able to say it, she was able to do it. So we wanted her to be able to keep her hands on her walker and stay close to the walker, not push it out. So she was able to do that. And that was really, that was really great. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's a good story. And then now, where, so where are you working now? So I work, <laughs> it's a completely different thing. <laughs> so I went from working with adults um, to working in pediatrics and in, in working with children. So for the past six and a half years, I have been working uh, as a cranial remolding specialist <laughs> slash occupational therapist. So uh, like we talked about before, Gus, Occupational therapy is just, you can do so much. You have therapists in the classroom. You have therapists in outpatient locations. Therapists can work with you to get you strong, but they can also work in the field of orthotics, which is bracing, splinting, things like that. So I became specialized in working with uh, cranial remolding orthotics, which is a fancy word for a helmet. And uh, we, uh, we work with children, usually infants. So from birth to a little bit under two months, uh, sorry, two years of age. And um, my day-to-day is pretty much either doing some therapy with these children uh, to work on strengthening, to work on milestones, or to make their helmets. <laughs> so what is, so cranial, so what, so why do they need why are these helmets beneficial? Why are they coming in to, to the clinic in the first place? So a lot of these children are coming in because either the parent is noticing that there is something different about the shape of the baby's head, or maybe the pediatrician or someone else has noticed it. So typically when that happens, then you're, uh, as a parent, you're directed to go to a specialist who will then see what is causing the difference in your baby's head. So at this point, um, that's where I come into play. Where I work is um, is a cranial facial facility. So they see uh, all sorts of patients that have cleft um, palate issues, that have uh, cranial facial deformities or abnormalities. And um, 
even down to the, to the hands, to the fingers, they'll see, you know, people who have extra digits, extra toes, things like that. So the specialists that I work with will typically try and see what's causing the difference in the baby's head. Is it a positional difference? So is the child having this because they're favoring maybe laying on one side over the other? Is it something that happened after birth? Is it something that happened prior to birth? Is it something internal? So the specialist's job is to try and figure that out. And how we do that is we take the history of the parent. We look and look at the child. We do, sometimes we do imaging. So imaging can be like x-rays or CT scans. And what those imagings are looking for is to see, is the infant's skull shaped in a certain way that is causing the problem? Maybe the bones closed early. And if you're familiar with infants, their heads are really soft. You touch a baby's head and you all squishy and you can kind of feel pretty much everything. So uh, a baby skull is soft. It's, it's supposed to be uh, like that so that when they go through the birth canal, you know, then it's a little bit easier on, <laughs> on the child to, to come out. So if there is a problem such as a bone fusion or um, something going on internally, then that's when the, when the specialist is able to make uh, an intervention. So will this child need surgery to open up those bones and allow the head to grow freely? Uh, or is it something else? Is it fluid or something? So if those things are not what's causing the difference in the baby's head, um, that's where I come in. <laughs> so as a, uh, as an occupational therapist, I can help teach the parents about repositioning. So a lot of times if the child is favoring one side over the other, it could be because there's some weakness in the muscles. It could be a habit um, or it could be just the parents need some support. They need to be uh, educated or they need to be taught. You can turn your baby on their side when they're awake. So the, um, the big push is, uh, changing the baby's position when they're awake so that they're not laying on one side over the other so that the head is free to grow. Um, it sounds very simple. It sounds like common sense, but you have to take into consideration that a new parent has no sleep. <laughs> they're, they're usually really, um, really information overload. They're learning how to take care of another little human who is very vocal <laughs> about their wants and needs. And um, it really, it's been a real big push for parents um, by the American Association of Pediatrics to lay the babies down on their backs to sleep. That's been a real big thing um, since the 90s. It's been a, a life-changing um life-changing program. It's reduced the risk of SIDS significantly. All the hospitals, all the nurses, all the pediatricians would tell the parents, when your child is going to sleep, place them on their back. And absolutely, every parent should do that. Um, you don't want a child on their tummy or on their side if they're 
not old enough to roll out of that position. You know, infants don't really move too much at first. They just kind of stay. So you really want to avoid them um, suffocating or being in a position that could cause them harm. So what we tend to see is these babies are laying on their backs for a long time, even when they're awake. The parents aren't moving them as much. So then they tend to have a little bit of favoritism or maybe the skull is, is not shaping the way it needs to other, other times. And so, and so the helmet, the helmet is essentially designed to fit comfortably enough on the baby to allow mm-hmm. the, the, the head to develop more, more correctly or more normally. I know that's sensitive words, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's essentially what's being done, right? So that the helmets are custom made. Um, they are made to the design of the baby's head. So we use measurements. Um, we have tools that we take measurements. Basically, you're seeing how big the head is, how wide, how long. And then we use a tool that's a 3D laser scanner. It's a non-invasive. It's not like an x-ray or CT. It takes a picture using cameras and a laser and it uploads this image into a software that gives us a bunch of measurements and data about the baby skull. So it doesn't go in the head. It goes just gives us an outside shape. And so this program allows us to establish a baseline. We have research, we have uh, empirical data that lets us know where a human skull should be, not for aesthetic reasons, but for uh, functional, just to be able to, um, for your brain to develop. So the skull grows because the brain grows and the brain and an infant is constantly growing. It's pushing up against those skull bones. Those skull bones are not fused yet. They're nice and free and open. So the skull is free to advance. So what happens in a baby that has a misshapen head is that the skull is only growing one way. It's not growing fully the other way. So when you think about the skull not growing that way, you also have to consider, is the brain also not growing out that way? And so in very minor cases, uh, it is considered um, a little bit of cosmetic, but essentially moderate and severe misshapen um, forms, you want to intervene to prevent it to get worse. There's still research going on on the children who perhaps had some uh, difference in, in their skull shape and how it's affecting them in their development in school age. And because it's relatively new in the last 10 to 15 years is the research is still coming in, but there can be some delays. Uh, not everyone is, but you know, it's, it's the helmet therapy is a form of early intervention. So you're really stopping the skull from going in the wrong direction and allow it to, to grow where it probably would have anyway, if the mattress wasn't there, if they weren't favoring that side. So. And so how often do these helmets need to be redone like or does it I know it's probably case by case but typically um is this something that the baby wears for six months two years what's the what's the protocol so infants um they grow rapidly in the first year of age uh their heads are growing rapidly babies tend to have big heads and small bodies so 
the, uh, depending on the type of helmet that you use or the company you go with or where you go, um, the helmets are typically designed to either be adjusted or to be changed. Um, the helmets that I particularly work with are the Starband helmets and they, uh, you actually adjust them. So the child pretty much only needs the one helmet that was custom made for them. And then as they start to grow, you start to gently direct the head towards where you want it to grow. So it's like a detour. Don't go this way, go this way. And Is you there, do that by removing layers of the helmet. Yeah. How long does it take the babies to get acclimated to the helmets? Or is it just pretty, because it's custom made and custom fitted? I'm sure parents are asking you like, you know, is this painful? Is this yeah. going to be uncomfortable? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, for people that maybe have been through that or, or who, who might go through that in the future, what's, what's the answer there? It really is. It depends on the child. It, it isn't a, it is not painful. It's not applying pressure to the head. It's not um, causing headaches or anything like that. You don't want to put a helmet on a child and put pressure on it because then that's not good. You have a brain that's expanding. So you don't want to do that. So the helmets, because they're custom made, they're made to fit the head better than the diaper that you would buy off the shelves, you know, <laughs> or the pants that you buy at the store. So the most uncomfortable part of it is that you do have something on your head and normally our heads are where our body evaporates or heat. And you normally don't feel that until you put something on there that has nowhere to go but down. <laughs> so that's probably the most uncomfortable part that the babies may feel warm or they may start to sweat. With sweating comes rashes. So most babies get used to it within, I would say, a few a few days to, to about a week or so. Babies are super resilient. As long as you keep them comfortable, dress them, com you know, lightly, cool, clothing, breathable. Um, you clean the helmet often. You make sure they're not there in, in their sweat. Then they typically acclimate pretty quickly. Sometimes you may get the sleepless night parent who's like, oh, my child's not falling asleep. They're not comfortable. And the older the child is, the more challenging it is for sure. Um, if you put something on a three-month-old or a four-month-old, they typically won't fight you to get it off. But if you remember with, you know, your nieces and nephew, if you put something on them, boom, comes off. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but the treatment varies. Each child is different. We do work on, on establishing a plan of care that is, um, is, is custom made. So, you know, depending on the severity of the child and how old they are is really what's going to dictate how long. If, it, if a child is in a helmet and they didn't have any surgery, there, there was nothing internal that was going on, they'll, they'll average about three to three to four three to five months in the helmet. Is it something that, again, it's customizable, right? I'm assuming it's per, per case, but do they typically wear the helmet, you know, 20, 24 hours a day, five hours a day, mm -hmm. or, it just, or it varies? I'm assuming no, it varies. Yeah. No, <laughs> actually, it's a pretty set standard. 23 hours is what's recommended. Um, there's been some research on it, and the conclusion is 23 hours is the best. Uh, a child grows not only during sleep. We know children grow periodically throughout the day. So 
the helmet has to be on at least 23 hours so that you capture that growth. Um, if you're not wearing helmet, then the child's just going to grow out of it. Um, you know, just like if you don't wear uh, shoes, you're going to put it on sometimes and it's going to fit tightly. So really it needs to be on 23 hours. Um, most most clinicians that work in, in the field that I work will, will provide a schedule to the parent um, that will help acclimate the child so that it's not a big shock for them. So you'll, you'll, you'll allow them to get weaned into it um, and it'll be checked periodically. Similar to braces, you have to go frequently to get them checked, to get them adjusted. So there is a lot of thought and care put into the process of how to get the babies used to it, how to get the families used to it, and really being for them throughout the whole journey until they're done. I'd imagine that the biggest challenge um, here is to get the parents to follow the the regimen and get comfortable with it, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. like the baby, it's not like the baby is going to speak up and say like, nope, I don't want this. So it's really, it, this is really, the success is measured by how well the parents understand and acclimate to and follow the program. Definitely, definitely. That is one of the biggest challenges that I face on my day-to-day is compliance, um, keeping the helmet on. And I would say a lot of a lot of families are pretty compliant. They're 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 eager to get it done. They understand what happens if they don't. And in a way, when they are coming to see me, a lot of them feel accountable for, you know, being being compliant. Um, They get asked, are you wearing it? And they can say yes or no, but then we take measurements. We do scans. I can tell if someone's not wearing it or not. (laughs) So a lot of them will pretty much fess up before we get to that point. Um, So definitely compliance is a big thing. And it could be a number of reasons. Sometimes parents want to have the helmet on the child, but maybe the child may get sick often unrelated to the helmet. And so they're not able to wear it, or maybe the child is very sensitive in their skin. So they start to have a lot of skin issues and that could be another reason why they may not wear it. So there are cases where it's kind of out of the hands of the parent and, and they become a little bit frustrated because they want to wear it. And then, and then obviously you have the, the situations where it just, it's difficult. Everybody's everybody's life journey is different and, and there may be other factors other than not wanting to put it on could be other family support or lack of that comes into play could be home situation, things like that. So you really have to take that into consideration and try your best to work with everyone, meet them at the level and, and just remind everyone that we're on your side. You know, I want what you want. I'm not here to <laughs> to judge you or as a parent or as a caregiver. I'm here to support you. And and as long as you're able to to meet me halfway, we can we can we can get through this together. So that's awesome. That's a great attitude. That's um we have I have found that to be very helpful too in in my work is reminding whenever whenever there's a a problem or a conflict or a challenge it's great to 
remind people that you're actually on their side, that you're not, you know, this isn't, this isn't a confrontation. This is a, there's a problem. We're going to work through it together and we're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. For sure. Definitely. And, and these, a lot of these families come and they're very scared. They don't understand what's going on. They don't know how they got there. They have a new baby who, you know, now someone's saying you need to put something on their head. Um, they're not sleeping and, or, you know, it could be their third or fourth baby. It doesn't matter. Every, every, you know, it's a lot for them. And it's natural for some of us to be defensive and, and to, to just not just think everyone's against you. So like, like what you were saying, Gus, it's, you have to remind people I'm on your side. <laughs> I want what you want. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then I, I imagine too, like um, this would be a, a great second episode that um, we can explore doing, but I would imagine that as a parent, um, and I haven't really spoken to my mom or dad about this either, but I would imagine that whenever there's something that is not within the quote unquote normal sphere, that there is some, you know, conscious or unconscious blame, right? Like I did something, you know, my child is having this issue because of something that I did wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So there's some complicated factors there that you have to navigate through. Absolutely. And it's, it's something I hear all the time. You, you also, as not only as a, as a therapist, you're there for the child um, in my case, but you're also there for the parent um, reminding the parent it's not their fault. (laughs) It really isn't. Um, Even, even if, if, uh, if they think it is, it's, it's a hard mindset to get out of. Um, So, but I feel more so that with the pandemic, it's, it's shifted things to parents feel isolated. A lot of them feel isolated. They not able to take their children out, you know, and they're not able to meet other parents so they're really relying on the internet and social media to kind of connect. Um, and sometimes I'm the only other adult they see every two to three weeks. So um, it really, uh, I hear a lot that, that blame like inflicting on themselves or, and, and it's, 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 it's tough. It really is. Um, but you know, you have to remind them that they'll, we'll get through it. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that there are, more often than not, most most parents will regret not doing the program in its entirety than doing it. Many parents would be like, I maybe I wish I would have kept it on longer, <laughs> but nobody's telling me I, you know, I regret doing this or, you know, it was a waste of time. I don't care that at all. So, gotcha. mm-hmm. so what are some of the the more effective strategies that you've found then to help the parents get over that, that, uh, that blame game that they play. Is it support groups with other parents? Is it something that like, I'm sure they didn't train you how to do this in school, right? So (laughs) how do you? No, No, they did not. Um, well resources. So a lot of times I will bring up, um, that there are groups on online and some of them already find them on their own um, where other parents are going through similar things. So again, the internet has really helped in that. 
Um, there is also the fact that you kind of just talk through it. I'm present in these families' lives for a few months, seeing them every two to three weeks. Sometimes I'm there for their baby's first steps or babbled words or, you know, so you're going through this intimate moment in, in a parent's life. So you have, you have time to talk about things and, and I'll relate stories. Stories is an ancient way of communicating. You know, that's how our ancestors did it. That's how we're doing it. I will tell parents other success stories and even things that weren't successful. Like a lot of them, especially when they're struggling with, with the sleep and, and maybe the child's having a little difficulty, you know, doing that, I will tell them, listen, I had a parent here two days ago who just told me that the baby's now sleeping with the helmet. They told me they tried this and this, you know, why don't we try this? Let's do that. Let's work on that. Um, and, and that's, you know, that seems to be pretty effective. Also taking a step back and looking at the situation they were in. Um, a lot of them retrospectively will find that maybe they were dismissed when they first brought up an issue, they had a gut feeling, they talked to their pediatrician about it, or they talked to someone about it and someone dismissed them. So we will take a look at that together and see, okay, so this was something you brought up. You did notice it and they told you it would get better or go away. They didn't listen to you. That's not your fault. So we'll talk about ways to advocate for their, for their, you know, for their child and even for themselves. So. Um, that helps out a lot too. Is that where you, do you see like, and again, we don't want, we're not here to assign any blame, but just as an awareness thing, right? Like, is there still a lack of awareness? Um, because this is a specialized field among pediatricians where they're maybe not, they don't have the training, they don't have the expertise to catch these issues as early as they can be. So what is, what is like, what is your field doing to help? Is it about, is it about awareness and education more than anything, or is there something else that's missing? Absolutely. It is about awareness and education. Um, that awareness, education, and also time. So a lot of the pediatricians have a lot of patients coming in and out. Their goal is to make sure the baby is healthy in any sort of manner, whether it be up to date with their vaccines or doing the things they should be doing, that they're gaining weight, things like that, and addressing any concerns. So they're checking the child, they're doing the best they can, but sometimes things get missed, you know, or they think, well, it'll get better. But you're not in to see your pediatrician often enough that I, if it's not getting better, <laughs> it's not caught early. So usually with children, you have the visit initially when they're born, then you have one at two months old, then at four months old, then at six months old. So what I'm getting a lot from the parents is that between birth and six months old, it's either getting missed or Teachers are saying it's going to get better on its own, or by the time it's caught, it's 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 really far down in the game. And it's not necessarily that they're doing it on purpose, but again, they have a lot to to address in that time 
that you're in that room. And so it may not get to that point. So my, um, my colleagues and I, and I'm talking about even the people that I work with here and then other people around the world, what we try to push is for education. So my colleagues and I are going to the pediatricians in our county, in our, I mean, we've gone even like half the state to, to introduce them this information, give them pamphlets about the importance of repositioning the child, about checking the head, about working with these parents so that the parents are aware that, you know, if you see something, um, this is something that you can try and do to, to help. And if not, you know, let's, let's, let's take a look at it. Now, a big challenge that comes from pediatricians not being aware of these or hospitals being aware of it is documentation. So by the time you, you realize or as a parent that your child needs a helmet, you're at the point where, you know, you're getting ready to see if this is going to be covered by insurance. Most, most families would do that before they pay out, you know, they consider paying out of pocket. So insurances may or may not cover the helmets, depends on the plan, depends on the insurance. So the ones that do rely real, a lot on, on documentation. <laughs> if you didn't document, it didn't happen. So parents will often not be able to get a helmet for a child because maybe it, nobody ever wrote it down. Like it wasn't documented in the notes, even if they talked about it, or maybe it was, but it wasn't document documented till a later visit. So that can be a real challenge because then you have a child who needs this orthotic device to help them, um, you know, to get to, to where they need to be, but they have to either wait for it because it's not covered or, you know, they don't get it. So there is, um, there is some research out there that does tell us that intervention. So when a, when a parent or a caregiver is able to reposition the baby when they're able to give them therapy if needed before the age of six months, the child can, can the child's skull can get a little better on their own. So that's real important. That's so valuable. If you're telling me that my child can avoid beating a helmet if I do if I try X, Y, and Z, but if that information is not getting to the parents, how, how are they able to implement that? So that's where we're coming in. We're going to these pediatricians. We're trying to get into the NICUs, the neonatal intensive care units in the hospital. We're trying, we're trying to talk to, you know, the gynecologists, the obstetricians, the, you know, reposition, you know, move your baby, work with them because you can't, to a certain point, sometimes you can prevent it before a certain age. Once the baby starts moving on their own, it's really difficult um, to put them in any position that's going to help them. So, yeah, I, that's um, it's inspiring to hear that, and it also shows like how much you believe in what you're doing and and the doctors that you work with too, right? Because most most I mean most professionals um, I think don't. To me, that's going the extra mile. It's like, I want to help. Let's prevent these issues, regardless of whether they get the helmet. Let's put, let's put the information out there and help as much as we can. So that's really, it's beautiful to see that 
you know, you're doing that, your office is doing that and other, other colleagues around the world are as well. So that's, that's really nice. And yeah. yeah. And I will say that, you know, the healthcare system, like everybody knows, it has some, some major issues that hopefully will get better and uh, we'll leave it at that. Whether it's more time with patients, you know, better insurance coverages, et cetera. Absolutely. Well said. Definitely. Yep. Um, doctors I work with are great. They're doing speeches, presentations, research. And I mean, it's not beneath them to go and wait in a pediatrician's office with me, waiting for these pediatricians to have a little bit of their time so that we can talk to them about how important it is. Um, we're out there. We're knocking doors. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, so last question for you, Nikki. <laughs> have I, what have I missed that we haven't talked about that you think is important? Hmm. You seem to have covered a lot. <laughs> you did. Um, give me a second here. <laughs> okay. Well, let me, let me ask you the, we'll give you, give you a second to think about that. I just wanted to say, I think it's important for the audience to understand Something to is like we've been friends for quite a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I work with Frank, who, who's your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all super close, but I did want to mention like, so my, I had a question for you that I've never asked you before, which is so when you were in school, this could be elementary school, high school, college, mm-hmm. um, or even in, in your work as an OT, did you ever like, do you ever have friends or people you knew or people you saw or, you know, interacted with that had a disability, physical disability? It could be something non-physical related. Have you ever had that experience? So thinking back, I think that there was a few friends that may have had some physical disability as far as limitations that happened um, prior to birth. Um, but nothing that was limiting them from being out and about with the rest of the peers for sure. No, no. I think more the disabilities, not in my friends or peers that I can think of more in older adults or family members, um, growing up. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because Mm -hmm. When like I I don't remember the exact you know day that we first met um <laughs> like I is it right but I I do remember <laughs> I do I do remember at the very least like generally speaking when we were hanging out as a group that it was never it was never awkward it was never like um you know you can tell when people I can tell when people are uncomfortable with me when they see me um mm-hmm. and then obviously I'm going to work towards getting rid of that discomfort, but I never had that with you. I never had that with Frank. Um, I was just wondering, I guess it's something that's part of your personality and how you see people as opposed to how you were trained. It could, could very well be. I, I can't remember exactly either. When we first met. I remember, I, I think we were in a group setting. Um, and I, to be honest with because, Frank knew you before I did. So that's how we, you and I met. Um, and I remember 
we met before him and I were married. So I think he had brought me over and the whole group of friends was getting together. And to be honest with you, I even can't remember if he told me anything about you other than your name and, you know, what you were into prior to meeting with you. But um, I know you and I have talked about how we may or may have not talked about your limitations or, or gotten into, into that history. And I, I wasn't uncomfortable when I met you. I think that, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but when I first meet someone, if I notice, of course, I did notice that, you know, there was, there was some differences, but I don't, I don't address them because I wait for someone to talk to me about it. I look at someone, whether they're a different skin color than me, different hair color, or they have something different externally. I look at it and say, okay, you, you've got that moving on. Just as if you would have green hair versus red hair, or I appreciate it. I see it. And then I move on to what is it that I want to do with you, talk with you, get to know you, chat. I don't let what I see carry me through our friendship or our interaction. I know with physical disabilities, you're wearing, you're wearing it on, on yourself versus disabilities that we don't see learning mental that's hidden. You can't see that. Um, so it, it can't, I can see how it could be challenging for some people to get past that. But for me, I just want to get to know you. I want to talk with you. And, and it's not something that I'm trying to either dismiss because it's not important. I acknowledge it, but at the same time, I don't think it makes you, you, <laughs> you, you're more to me than your limitations. You, you know, you're, an interesting person. You're very smart. We've had lots of, <laughs> lots of great conversations. You're funny. And, um, and I enjoy being with you. You've got a lot of charisma and it's, it's just always a pleasure to be, just be around you. You've got that aura and it's, you know, it's good vibes. So, um, Thank you. but I mean, so, but to me, that sounds like that's something that's part of that way of looking at people is part of, is part of who you are mm-hmm. or probably a number of, you know, it was, it was parents, it was friends. It was how you, how you developed as a person, which is a great, it's a beautiful thing. Cause most people are not like you. Um, but is that something that they also reinforced or taught or got into in, in occupational therapy in school or, or not really? They do. They, Occupational therapy is interesting because you really take into account the person itself, the person themselves. So you are trying to see the person as a whole and then divide them into parts. So yes, your limitations and stability is one part, but then everything else, your role in life as a son, as uh, uncle as a friend comes into play, your professional interests also come into play. You know, if I was doing an occupational therapy profile on you, we would look at all those aspects. I wouldn't just look at, you know, you got a broken finger, let's fix it. Sure. 
but <laughs> we're looking more more into into you what makes you so absolutely it could be that you know either i was called into it because that was attractive to me from the profession but they it definitely just the frame of of reference that we use um to 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 take in an assessment of a patient we're not just looking at you know why are they here but every all the other components um I know in, in, in your interview with, um, with BJ Miller, you talked about the, you know, the, the medical model and how in his business, he, um, he kind of strives away from that. And so does OT. OT uses the medical model to a certain point. Um, obviously if you come in and you have, again, I'm going to go back to the broken finger. (laughs) We're going to fix it. We'll do therapy, but Um, There are things that as a therapist, you're working on with a patient or a client or, you know, um, someone who's in front of you who is not, you know, again, we're not trying to fix something that's broken. We're looking at every other aspect of your life and trying to work with that and see how can we get back to doing the things you want to do or what's meaningful for you. If you use use a wheelchair and your environment is the problem, then, you know, what's it's not a medical model. It's a social, it's a, it's an environmental thing, right? Yes. If, if your yes. apartment is accessible, if the places that you want to go to in public are accessible, then it's not really a limitation in the, in the way that we usually think of it. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's though you're looking at the whole picture, environmental, absolutely. social, medical. Everything. Right. Everything. That's right. You hit it on the nail. Absolutely. The environment can the environment can cause a disability. Your environment, whether it be the home, school, community, it can it can limit you. So, um, yeah, we definitely as therapists, we're looking we're looking to change that. We want to want to make it accessible to everyone, and just you know, so that everyone can thrive. Awesome. So, where can people find you, Nicole? If uh, can you tell us about you know. You don't have to give your, your social media account out, but like, so if, if somebody wants to consult with you, they're in South Florida or maybe they're traveling and, mm-hmm. you know, your clinic is pretty well known. Where can they come in and, and find you professionally? Sure. Absolutely. So I work at Atlantic Center Surgery. Um, so you can look us up. We're on face, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we have a website. Um, I work with Dr. Eric Stolnicki and Dr. George Kamel. We're located in Fort Lauderdale, but we also travel to other offices. Um, I'm also on the Starband website as an all-star provider, or you can uh, look me up and uh, find it through orthoamerica.com, which will lead you to Starband. Starband is the type of helmet that I use. So um, you can find me there. And, um, or uh, I can always, give you my professional email <laughs> and you can link it on your site. If anybody wants to send me any questions or anything like that, I'd be open to that for sure. Yeah, we'll, def- we'll definitely do that. We'll put that on the website. Thank you so much for the time and the awesome conversation. This was, this was great. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. 